This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I'm joined by my co-host, Reese Armstrong. Hello, Reese. Hello. How are you doing, Ian? Not so bad, mate. How's yourself? Yeah, not bad. Thank you. And the rarity for one of our discussion pods is that we've actually got a guest on, and it happens to be the Brussels correspondent for the Daily Express, Joe Barnes. Hello, Joe. Hello, and thank you for having me. Not a problem. Uh, you might guess why if we got a leading Brexiteer newspaper on. Nah, nah. We just know that Joe's a very good source for knowing about uh, uh, what's going on with the uh, vaccine process uh, in Europe at the moment. And I think that's where we're going to start, actually, because um, AstraZeneca in the EU rumbles on, um, especially now the EU has brought a lawsuit against AstraZeneca. Joe, you actually provided us the details on this one, so I'm going to let you talk us through it, if you don't mind. Okay, so from the very beginning of the process um, of delivering vaccines to the EU, AstraZeneca has been basically slashed its forecasts, so it's delivering less than previously promised in its advanced purchase agreements. And because of this, Brussels, the European Commission, and member states have tried to convince AstraZeneca through different means, essentially say it's vaccines uh, export mechanism to stopping AstraZeneca jabs traveling to Australia that were made in Europe. Um, It's it's tried general mediation while going around factories, but now it's got to the stage where the European Commission believes it has no other choice but to open kind of formal legal proceedings and has done so in a Belgian court uh, earlier this week. Well, that was a very succinct way. Me and Reese usually go around the houses there, so thanks for the uh, <laughs> the, the, brev- the brevity there, Joe. Um, Reese, we've actually spoken a lot about the spats between you know the the, the Commission and and AstraZeneca. Yeah. It's it's safe to say we don't we don't think that the Commission's actually covered itself in any glory, but it they seem pretty convinced that AstraZeneca has a case to answer. Yeah, I, I guess it all falls back on their contract that they've signed with AstraZeneca, the advanced purchase agreement, which was for um, 300 million doses with an additional 100 million doses at um, a certain point in 2021. The, the trouble is AstraZeneca is obviously facing quite a potential, well, first of all, an influx of their uh, deliveries from all over the world. I think AstraZeneca is the most sought-after COVID-19 vaccine out of all the manufacturers, something like um, 300 million potentially more, actually maybe 3 billion, I've got the um, stats somewhere, um, of their vaccine is uh, is wanted around the world. So, you know, they've got a lot of push and pull from this global demand, and they've clearly faced a shortfall in manufacturing capacity. Um, only in January, we saw one of their production facilities was estimated only to be written at 60% capacity. And um, without getting into it, vaccine manufacturing is quite a variable process anyway for pharmaceutical manufacturers so yeah they're in a tough position now my question in regard to the eu is is 
now the right time to be suing a major pharmaceutical corporation when COVID-19 is still ongoing? So that's quite an interesting point, Reese, because to get to the stage of legal proceedings, the European Commission had to basically secure the backing of all the member states. And, and Germany, um, probably the biggest, well, is the biggest kind of European economy, even France, which is seen as kind of the most antagonistic of EU countries, kind of erred on the side of caution. And what they said was, is it wise for us to be suing AstraZeneca? Will it have a effect? Will it mean that we actually secure more doses? And will it have a detrimental effect on confidence in vaccines in general when we are trying to roll out jabs at kind of an unprecedented speed and an unprecedented amount of jabs? We've never seen a global like kind of rollout of this size. Um, so actually, there's a lot of kind of hesitation behind the EU's lawsuit. Maybe the Commission is going gung ho, but actually the member states will try and row it back because it's it is damaging. We like you, there, there are questions of why is the European Commission going after a manufacturer that has created a jab which at first was done at cost price. Mm. It's, it's the jab that's designed to be used by a kind of Covax to reach the hard to reach places, say, such as the African and less less economically developed countries. So that's a genuine question looming over the Commission, and they're yet to answer why they've really done it. Yeah. I mean, politically, this is very delicate, but I don't... Th- from from your standpoint, Joe, I, I think you're probably of the, of the view that um, they probably don't really care about the politics of it at the moment because they probably burnt a lot of their political capital at the start of it with the procurement process. Yeah, that's well. So the, the procurement process—that's a that's a different story. Like hmm. a lot of like, so I think Germany this week actually reached over a million people in a single day, which is an unprecedented amount of jabs. Incredible! Like, I am yeah, kind they did two point one million in the past two days. Yeah, exactly. It's, hmm. it's so there will be questions over the EU, the Commission-led procurement scheme of why didn't we get our jabs earlier? Because they could Europe could have been largely out of a mess when you look at the real-world data of what's happening in Britain and compare it to kind of the still surging cases in the EU and like the third wave that we talk about on in continental Europe, that could be largely eradicated in some countries by now. But obviously they've not had enough jabs. And then what we look at going forward is whether... Sorry, I've lost my trailer of thought. Um, you were saying about the, um, the processes... Will vaccine manufacturers want to do business with the European Union going forward? Because this is a this is a process. We're fighting a pandemic together. We're partners, not. And this is how Britain has uh, kind of gone about it. Kate Bingham, when she was negotiating all of the UK's contracts, said, "Look, we are partners in fighting a global pandemic. The EU has treated it like a business transaction, and they are kind of ratty customers that are a bit bitter that they've not got what." what they bought ordered rather than trying to help the process through kind of actual mediation and partnership. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of thoughts I have about the way the, the, uh, the EU has pursued this, but, um, I think the cost bit that you mentioned is an, is an interesting one because we've actually talked about the need for COVAX to get the required, you know, amount of jabs that they need to, so they can reach those countries. The fact that AstraZeneca has produced it is, is marvelous. And I think Johnson and Johnson have also, um, they're also one, one manufacturer that has managed to produce 
vaccines that seem to be reaching areas and that are uh, certainly in the United States, according to the Center of Disease Control, that they are actually reaching areas where it's, uh, you know, of less economic development. So it, you know, I, it, it feels like, um, I think the business transaction comparison that you've, that you've put to us is, you know, that's an interesting one because it, it basically they're just being sticklers for detail. And I think that was the same with the procure, procurement process when we've not got the required amount in, in quarter one, for example, and then are we going to get them in quarter two? And then it, it just seems as though the number kept on falling. It's worth it's worth saying that Britain also suffered pretty large shortfalls in its delivery schedules from AstraZeneca. But instead of kicking off and being kind of angry about it, Britain helped send uh, experts to the Serum Institute in India. We sent our experts to the Halix factory in the Netherlands in Leiden, which is what that was at the kind of the centre of the EU-UK railway for vaccines. Um, to try and help boost production and see what we could actually do to help AstraZeneca rather than going, we think you're in breach of best reasonable efforts or kind of challenging the terms of the kind of business contracts. Well, of course, we've got business contracts as well, but it's just how we've managed that process and managed that relationship slightly differently from the EU. And has it come to probably help us? Yes, we are the fastest country at this stage in rolling out vaccines countries will catch us up because so you look at as i said germany have got a great capacity uh, Belgium really well now but we've got to this stage first and you've got to ask why and is that how we've managed our relationships with the vaccine producers whether it be pfizer and BioNTech, whether it be astrazeneca and the oxford university scientists or johnson and johnson or moderna that we we've done it slightly differently but I, I would like to pick up on the, the Oxford element and the AstraZeneca thing, because I think that's probably one of the reasons that the UK hasn't been so gung-ho. It's the fact that they've actually held this up as one of their the successes, basically, of you know, this is our, this is our role and we did this. And if they ended up turning around and, and uh, kicking off over contracts, then it, they would look far worse than the EU's currently looking. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. That's, um, that, is, that is the big government success of, of coronavirus so far, and we could we could talk about how shabbily handled the first lockdowns and such work, but actually vaccines has been a kind of a real point of success for the government. And they, yeah, they put together, Oxford came to the government and said, we need a partner. They spoke to different firms. They managed to convince AstraZeneca, who is, I believe is their first foray into proper large scale manufacturing of vaccines um, to do it on a kind of a cost free, like kind of at point of cost basis to make sure that it can be rolled out to the rest of the world. And yeah, it's a, it's a huge success. And, I, if I was a government advisor, wouldn't be telling them to go gung ho and kind of attack AstraZeneca and the Oxford scientists for any shortfalls in deliveries. Yeah, I've known, think... sorry, Joe. I've known you eleven years. I wouldn't want you to be a government advisor. So, Reese, <laughs> <laughs> you were saying. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people underestimate, which this is going to sound ridiculous, but they underestimate the difficulty of producing a, a vaccine. It isn't the case that. It's just made in a factory, you know, in a cell culture. I mean, that is that is the case, but there's so many steps to the manufacturing process, even from logistics and distribution, finishing the vaccine, um, fill and finish. Um, I, I think somebody in the BMG was saying was, you know, 208 steps to one of their processes for um, a, a man, a manufacturing of a vaccine. Um, and with AstraZeneca's, it's, it's all to do with the cell culture. And if there's any deviation in quality, then the batches in the, um, the yields 
can be disrupted. So the fact that, you know, you, you, you assumed you're like, we've sent advisors over to India to try and help out the manufacturing process. I think that's the right way to go. And, and, and just to have this, it's not, I understand that's not a petty argument between the EU and, and AstraZeneca, but it's almost like I was saying earlier, it's just not the time for it, especially in the middle of a, of a pandemic when, you know, we've seen so many deaths and so many disruptions across the world. Right now, there should be more of a cohesive effort, I think, to get back on track. And even going back to the procurement process, I know the UK has jumped the gun in terms of getting enough vaccines to um, vaccinate their population. But I think going forward, we need, to, we need to look at what's a better plan for better global vaccination coverage rates. So we aren't in a situation where the EU can say, well, we aren't vaccinating our population as quickly as we'd like to be. Is there a better way than saying, oh, well, you know, we've, we've ordered 500 million doses, but now we're not getting it. There's got to be a better business agreement in place beforehand. Well, there is the United Nations idea of creating a treaty to manage future pandemics. Um, whether they work, we know kind of international agreements are kind of fraught with danger, whether, whether a kind of a Donald Trump comes along or there is a, a another brexit of something there's always things to kind of ruin international agreements but it does, mm-hmm. that does seem generally the right idea to go about it because it's great that kind of britain is now unlocking a bit cautiously um but other places in europe aren't doing so and our economies are massively interlinked um whether it be like kind of because of manufacturing in germany that comes to britain to finish off the car parts etc um, or other global economies that we use are still kind of largely in lockdown and being ravaged by the pandemic. So yes, we do need to kind of come up with a more global and collaborative way to roll out the vaccine, purely because it's actually in the interests of everyone to make sure that we're all kind of COVID-free. Yeah, exactly. I think we've, we've always touched upon this when it comes to vaccine nationalism almost, that, that helps no one just to be so protectionist about, you know, about I, I mean, I, I get the... Uh, the appeal of saying we're vaccinating ourselves first before we vaccinate everybody else. On a level, it makes sense. But there is a case of we, we can't get back to normal unless everybody else is vaccinated in the first place. The entire premise of being told to stay at home wasn't just to protect yourself, it was to protect others. And the same premise applies when it, when it, when it comes to vaccinating populations around the world. But having discussed all this, we should probably, uh, you know, read part of AstraZeneca's response anyway, because I think they said AstraZeneca has fully fully complied with the advanced purchase agreement with the European Commission and will strongly defend itself in court. Uh, It says, we believe any litigation is without merit and we welcome the opportunity to resolve this dispute as soon as possible. And I think that later on they said they are actually on course to deliver, sorry, earlier on they said they are about to deliver almost 50 million doses to European countries by by the end of April. We are recording this at the end of April, by the way, for those listening in how many weeks time uh, and that is in line with their forecast but um, I think a lot early on anyway was actually people put their, hand, their hat on um, best efforts so that was a phrase that was scrutinised in particular when uh, the UK was rolling out AstraZeneca jabs and then the EU was struggling um, what's your understanding of the best efforts angle Joe? From what I understand, it's a pretty standard kind of clause that's in business contracts of when you're trying to, especially on, on when you're kind of looking at um, doing it at risk and advanced purchase, because there's no guarantee you're not, I'm not giving you a car that I already own. These are things that have to be made and then 
sent forward. So it carries it carries weight. It carries those teeth in the argument, the best reasonable efforts in in a kind of a, in a court. So yes, the EU probably does have a argument in that in that regard. And so one of the arguments it's always had, uh, it and you would hear kind of diplomats and officials from the Commission and the member states would say that we believe the EU, uh, sorry, AstraZeneca is using EU-based plants to supply Britain because Britain has a superior contract with AstraZeneca, which is all a bit kind of probably a bit over the top because we also have the same best reasonable efforts clause in our contracts. There's not actually that much difference. I guess it's just the sheer numbers of what is what is being made. So we... Um, a lot of our AstraZeneca jabs were domestically made, so I think we produced about 20-odd million now in the UK and exported about 2 million of them. And the EU was saying that it's kind of it's exported 80 million and made 200 million of its jabs, um, and a large part of those would have been AstraZeneca and Pfizer uh, made in the EU. So, yes, it does have an argument that there's probably been some breach of best reasonable efforts, but has it really? Because, as AstraZeneca said in their statement, it's a kind of they've made unprecedented steps at kind of trying to fight the pandemic, and it's it's a completely unknown process trying to build a coronavirus jab in such kind of high numbers. So, is it actually for the Commission to really say, look, we understand you had production problems at your Halix plant um, at a plant in Italy, I believe, also had some issues, and that's a fill and finish. Mm-hmm establishment so it's, it's a tough one to gauge but it does have legal teeth and we we'll have to kind of wait for the judgment on that one i'm afraid yeah if it feels a bit like that phrase itself it's very hard to prove that someone hasn't been putting their best reasonable effort in yeah exactly so this is uh, this is what the the commission is pointing to at the case from what we know so far um is saying that in its contract that the uk plants um should also be used to provide jabs for the EU member states. And as far as Brussels is, is concerned, no vaccines have moved, AstraZeneca vaccines, these are, have moved from the UK to EU member states. So maybe that's that's probably where they're going to challenge most of the court case, I think. Is that to do with AstraZeneca alongside the UK government? So one of one of one of the theories is floating around Brussels that the UK's contract with AstraZeneca and the Oxford University team basically gives the UK first dibs on any doses produced domestically, mm-hmm. whereas the EU doesn't believe that its contract has the same kind of privileges for doses made in Europe. Right, but we're never never going to know that unless we can compare. Both the contracts that have been signed. Uh, no, I've I've only read, and this was back in January, I think, when the first kind of leaked versions of the contracts, the EU contracts were, and so we only know kind of from the yeah from the EU side of what's happening, and I think they they eventually did release it under kind of pressure from MEPs, but we yeah we we're simply not going to know, and the UK aren't going to release it release the contracts because they'll say that it is kind of confidential business information company so mm-hmm. which i guess is fair enough yeah and um, 
I've just got a quick question, George. Just um, I suppose at the start of the of the pandemic, did you ever expect to be reporting on, or even did you ever expect to have just to see the EU Commission suing AstraZeneca? Um, no, not at all. It's, it's, it's quite a far fetched kind of concept. Anyway, as I, as I've as I've noted, because it's kind of it's a really even member states have raised it's a strange move to be trying to sue a vaccine producer in a time when you need to, to produce lots of vaccines. Um, but and you, you can see merit in it that some of um, the AstraZeneca CEO came out and did an interview with La Repubblica, an Italian newspaper very early on. And it basically said that the UK has a superior contract. That's why they're getting their jabs and you're not. So yeah, AstraZeneca probably hasn't painted itself in glory as well. Mm. But do we really need to get to the stage in a global pandemic where we're suing people? Probably not. That'd be wise not to, um, just for the sake of everybody's health. Uh, but um, I think we'll uh, leave the uh, rather detailed discussion that we've gone into there on um, on the ins and outs of the lawsuit and whether AstraZeneca has has fulfilled its obligations and whether the EU Commission's got a uh, got a case because. I think one of the early stories involving the AstraZeneca jab and, and Europe was the delay to rolling it out because of uh, suspicions around blood clots. And I think the, the EMA was uh, fairly vocal in saying, after a lot of due diligence, they, they decided that you know it's, it's better to have the vaccine than not. And now the UK has had similar you know, cases, though minimal, uh, to the point where it's not going to roll out the vaccine to under-30s here. You're more likely to be offered a Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. There was an interesting piece in The Telegraph about all this. I'm not sure if either of you managed to, to read it. Yeah. That, I uh, it, it's, I think it's it's really, really fascinating in terms of it, it was limited because of limited access to early emerging data from Europe that, that they missed this. So the, the the idea is that the EMA initially spent a lot of time reviewing AstraZeneca because it said the data just from the test from the test and the trials just wasn't there, so they wanted to take extra time. And I think it was it was over a month in between the UK and the EU approving through their separate regulators approving the jab. Um, and at first, a lot of EU countries raised hesitance to give the AstraZeneca vaccine to older people. So there was uh, reports out of Germany that it only had an 8% effectiveness um, in older people, which we've known now to be wrong. Uh, Emmanuel Macron said it was quasi-ineffective for older people. And now the issue of kind of the blood clots has arisen. And now everyone's kind of doing a, a bit of a kind of a an in-and-out scheme where now everyone has reversed it to we shouldn't give it to younger people, but it's okay for older people. Um, because of the fears of blood clots. Um, but the EMA have been quite certain on this. They always say that the risks of coronavirus outweigh the risks of the jab. Um, and if mm-hmm. you, you could look at reports about if we gave paracetamol, uh, a normal dose of paracetamol to the same amount of people that we're giving coronavirus vaccines to, we'd probably see similar kind of effects in it, and the EMA have made clear on numerous briefings I've attended that these are kind—they kind of expected things like this to happen, 
uh, during a mass rollout of vaccines. Yeah, the uh, the comparison in the UK that I've seen a lot on social media was you, you're not you're not stopping people from taking the contraceptive pill now. Yeah, I've seen that. It's all. I think I've also seen data saying that you've got more chance of getting a blood clot if you catch COVID nineteen. So it's in your best interest to get the vaccine. Yeah, and that's that's what the, that's exactly what the EMA is saying. And I think I think actually the Department of Health put out a similar thing, and it was like you, you're more likely to die in the bath than if you've had a dose of AstraZeneca. Um, so look, this is it's one of those, and you you, you have to kind of trust the experts. But I, I I don't think the way that Europe particularly handled it in the beginning, where they were kind of hysterical and trying to discredit the vaccine, which could have been part of their anger with AstraZeneca in, in the kind of the situation of delivering doses. There's been lots of suggestions it was all political. But it's, it's probably not been good for vaccine confidence in general um, when AstraZeneca is such a massive part in the global rollout. Yeah, we've just spoken about that a few times, Ian, haven't we, just in terms of vaccine hesitancy and especially the weird conversations floating on social media. You're going to get a lot of people who are now wary of, of taking the vaccine at a time and it's really, really important to get it. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that you can actually credit both the EMA and the MHRA on is that they've really been pretty consistent in terms of their messaging about, you know, what, you know, did the risks of taking the vaccine compared to coronavirus, for example. Um, I think the, I think the EMA's caution with, with their due diligence is probably vindicated by the the, the situation that we find ourselves in with the rollout of AstraZeneca. Not just in the UK now, but across Europe, it, it, it seems to be. They seem to have settled on an age range that should be having it now. I think it's worth it's worth pointing out in this regard that the EMA have said it's safe for kind of all people, all adults over eighteens, going forward, um, and the benefits of the jab outweigh the risk of taking it. The MR, uh, the British regulator, the MR, MRHAN, or whatever it's called. <laughs> Have obviously got their guidance of over. Well, it's only a recommendation that over you, it, like it, you can choose if you want. If if us as sprightly, uh, well, you're still 28, aren't you? And me as a sprightly 29 year old want a AstraZeneca jab, I can still have one if I wanted to. Yeah, uh, when um, when my time comes, but in Belgium that could be a uh, hundred years away. <laughs> um, if you've already received AstraZeneca vaccine as well, then you sh- you get the second dose. Exactly. So look, there, there is precautions in it, and it's it's only kind of right that the experts are doing their jobs. But I think largely what they're actually trying to tell us is it's it's safe. It's a very the EMA call it a very rare um, side effect of having it. So it's kind of uh, like as Ian said, contraceptive pills, getting in the bath. It, it's all like that. There are much riskier things to be happening. Yeah, if you actually read the side effects of any medication that you take from over the over the counter, you'd be you'd not be taking any of them if you actually believe all the scare stories surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine. Well, it's a classic joke about American television when they have their long ad breaks and you, you will have this wonder drug that will help you regrow your hair and turn you big and strong and then it's got that lasts for five seconds and you've got a 30-second reel of it may cause this, this, that and that. <laughs> so, yeah, look, it's, just, it's just modern medicine. We're, we're still not probably naturally meant to be injecting kind of live and active substances into our body um but it's a necessary kind of outcome and risk kind of end a global pandemic so then that's what we have to say on that one <laughs> yeah and we should just be grateful for the transparency as well 
you know, all, all the side effects have to be reported. And, and that's how, you know, effective medicines get through the regulators. And um, post-approval studies are really, are really important to make sure everyone's safe. So these are essential studies and, and work that's going on that's going on right now. Um, and that, with the AstraZeneca, I know I attended the EMA briefing when they announced their kind of the results of their investigation. They worked with the UK regulators. They worked with the US regulators. There, there's a genuine effort amongst kind of the experts in charge of regulating medicines to make sure it's safe. So um, I, that's why some of it. Maybe we didn't look at the the UK regulator didn't look at the European data early enough, but. They've been working together and collaborating quite a lot in this process um, to make sure that these jabs are safe for rollout. Can we just uh, come on to vaccination rates um, around the world at the moment? Because you know, there's there's, a, there's been a lot of talk about how well the UK is doing and still doing well after a there was a bit of a dip in supply at the start of the month, the start of April rather, and I think it's second in terms of vac- vaccination doses administered in Europe. Uh, hundred population only Malta's ahead of it. When you know, look at the size of Malta compared to the size of the UK, then I think the the UK is obviously going to be very proud of his efforts. But it's interesting that um, you have to uh, in third place is Hungary, and then you've got to scroll down a bit further for the other EU nations. It's what's Hungary done, Joe? Do you know anything there? So Hungary was one of the first EU countries to truly break away from the joint procurement. Uh, led by the Commission, and they purchased a big chunk of Sputnik V, the Russian-backed jab, and they also uh, purchased Sinopharm from the Chinese. And actually, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, went on television to be injected with the Chinese vaccine, which I think has since been kind of reported to have not great effectiveness against coronavirus. So, uh, but Hungary basically took the decision to saying we can't trust Brussels with the lives of our people, we're going to go a slightly different route. And under the EU rules, you're allowed to break away and issue an emergency market authorisation using your domestic regulator for jabs over the heads of the EMA. So Hungary have done nothing wrong. It it might be kind of against the idea of EU solidarity, but I I believe they've now done about 30% of their population. I think they're up to, um, let me just bring the figures up again. I think they are now up to 58.93 per 100. Oh, so much, much uh, higher than I initially thought. Well, so it goes, to, it goes to show that one, if you have a supply of jabs, you can administer them very quickly, and that probably goes to where EU states have had problems. And as you say, Malta are going good guns, but they're, it's a tiny country. Gibraltar, our British overseas territory, I think has vaccinated every adult now. Um, again, a, a kind of an idea of a small population. You should you should be looking at these uh, the kind of the Cypresses, the islands, um, the, the smaller kind of EU countries should be able to really start in kind of rolling out their jabs very quickly uh, across populations. Uh, thank you for actually touching on a uh, um, a political point, in, in, albeit subtly. You basically just rebutted one of the many Boris Johnson untruths that we're getting about. If the UK was still part of the EMA, then we wouldn't be able to um, uh, to approve the va- vaccination so quickly. We, me and Reese both know that's true, but it's nice to hear that the report from the Express is saying that. So, my pleasure. <laughs> I was one of his last ones in the Commons, wasn't it? Earlier this week. 
he did a, a prime minister's questions when he was saying that um, that our, he attributed our vaccine success to or Brexit for our vaccine success, which look politically it is, but legally it's not. We, as as an EU member, we would have most likely followed the grain and gone with the bigger member states. Um, so politically speaking, he's right. Legalistically, there are ways of getting around. As I mentioned, you're allowed to issue emergency authorization for your national regulator mm-hmm. in sort of pandemics and such. Sorry for jumping in for saying that on the politically he's right bit, but how do we know when the situation what just wasn't going to transpire in the first place? I mean, it's a it's a it's a bit of a sliding doors moment. Well, we could have we could have joined the EU's procurement program. We were invited to. And we actually held talks about it and. In that, we would have had to basically scrap any talks that we were having individually or unilaterally between the government and other manufacturers of vaccines. And then we wouldn't have had a say in the distribution tool that was used um, once the vaccines are being procured. So if we had probably joined the EU scheme, which we were invited to, it prob- we probably would have been in line with the Germanys, the Frances now, and other kind of countries that have similar capabilities but the fact that we did we jump the gun we were out we were out of the blocks a month quicker um than any eu country and look where we are now as a result i wonder how that would compare with a ppe um sort of uh, coverage because we had the chance to join the human scheme didn't we and it, it backfired on us so it's all um, the reverse of this that that's happened yeah is and um, the government at that point yeah did get a really kind of um a bad rap for not joining the procurement scheme for PPE and ventilators. Um, but again, that was the same argument used, is we would be a part of it, we'd have to scrap any unilateral efforts, um, like the ventilators with James Dyson effort, um, and basically leave ourselves in the hands of the EU. And, well, that's the premise of Brexit, is that everything, democracy returns to the House of Commons and the government. So you in 2024 can vote with your feet and not have Brussels used as a scapegoat for this government's successes and failures. But that's a, that's a, this is for another podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely yeah. is. Yeah, I think we're actually going to veer away from that now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's move on to the fact that the, uh, the UK's second dose rate seems to be climbing to, you know, close to matching the first now, I think. I think we're up to about is it fifteen million that have had the second dose now. I mean, I, I, I've not exactly got the figures in front of me, but we are we are starting to see, you know, more second doses happening. So anybody that was actually you know a little bit wary of uh, a variant taking off of COVID, where it's somehow immune to a person after they've had one one jab, I think that might be allayed a little bit. Um, Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Um, it seems to have had a couple of concerns similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine but please can you talk us through how the Johnson & Johnson one's manufactured because I think I know it's it's one shot rather than two but is it a case of that there's the similarities to AstraZeneca in terms of the way it's it's composed or, or yeah or so um the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine are basically adeno based vaccines um whereas some of the other ones that we've seen are mRNA where they use the replicant DNA um, to produce the virus, but um, I think the reason we're seeing similarities in the blood clots is because of just, you know, they are similar um, vaccine technologies. 
how they essentially work is they mimic a COVID-19 infection and then that lets you know your body trigger the antibodies needed to fight off the virus. Um, so I, I assume that would be why we're seeing the blood clot concerns and um, with these similar technologies. I, I think it's still going to be the case where it's going to be minimal concern and it is going to be safe. Just, just knowing that there, you know, that this similar technologies for vaccines is what I, why I'd assume, uh, why we're seeing the blood clots. Yeah, so the EMA yeah. have issued similar, similar kind of advice on Johnson and Johnson that is a very rare side effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the FDA has done the same in the United States as well. Yeah, so it I was, think we're all on the same page, aren't we? Pretty much. It was paused, which is nice to see, just just for um. Um, oh, what's the word? Well, just to be a, bit, a little bit hesitant um, by, by, by the FTN, you know, to assess that it is safe. It was paused for a week or so, maybe a bit longer. Um, and, and then it's, it's back, to, back to normal now. So, you know, we're just, we're just in a case where the regulators are just going to be assessing every situation with the vaccine, every sort of adverse event, which is reported. And um, hopefully we're not going to get anything worse than what we've seen from, from the, uh, the blood clots. Well, I think the... Politically, it's important to manage Johnson & Johnson correctly because it's going to be the shot that's most likely given to younger people because it's a single shot. It's really quite easy. And then it can be distributed to kind of like AstraZeneca because it, it doesn't need like kind of intense storage. It can be stored at a regular... Fridge temperature. Yeah, um, going, going across. So it's important to probably take the time and manage the the communication around it rather than having to stop it halfway through rollout because there's some fears about blood clots get it right at the first and then you can really roll it out quite quickly because it's it's just literally one shot move one shot move and that is that is you done and the efficacy is slightly lesser than the two shot jabs but for a younger person that shouldn't be an issue um because you're basically eradicating the risk of serious illness but not coronavirus in general yeah i think it was about 70 percent johnson and johnson which was above the uh 60% 60% recommended efficacy levels that was required when uh, they were in testing. I think there's also a point to make that it's not just going to be the young people, it's going to be the hard to reach people. I think, as the Centre for Disease Control said in the States, it's reaching certain communities that are otherwise you know, probably won't have got, got the other vaccines in the first place. And I think that's going to be the same in the UK and, and in Europe too. It's that, you know, there's, there's certain poorer and even rural communities that will you know that are probably going to be the last to sign up whether that's for me through hesitancy age or any other kind of dem- demographic it's if it's the last one then it obviously i think you're right joe it does need to be managed very carefully oh, i agree <laughs> no um this is this is really important on on that front because because it is it is the jab and we can we could uh laugh and i know we're going to talk about it later um in israel they used a strategy where you can come and have a free bottle of Bex Blue. Uh, they note they went alcohol free to encourage young people to have their jabs. Um, and in my eyes, Johnson Johnson is going to be the young person's jab because it is just a single shot. So it's not going to kind of interrupt their busy social lives and so and such. And and it's just it's just kind of in and out and done. And then you kind of on with your life and you're you are vaccinated and it gives you yeah all the benefits of a two shot vaccination. Uh, obviously a slightly less coverage but for a young person that shouldn't really matter mm-hmm. I think there's also a point to be made that I know that the UK secured a load of uh, Pfizer vaccines this week for booster jabs yeah. and I think there's, a, there's actually going to be 
I, put, uh, I know that uh, there's, there's trials going on the way of uh, whether a Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccine as the one and two jab are, uh, are as effective, but there's, act there's actually going to have to be a case for there's going to be a, there's going to have to be some studies that take place where other vaccines are the first one, and then a year later, how does it work as a booster when 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 they go to another brand? Yeah, we're, see, we're, we're seeing that in terms of the variants. Um, I, I believe a few, I can't remember who, but a few of the manufacturers are now testing their their vaccines against some of the variants that have emerged, just in case we do need the booster shots uh, later on down, down the year. But there was um, there was a little bit of um, uh, unsuredness. Uh, there was a little bit from the manufacturers about how unsure they were about how long the uh, efficacy would last in a person with a jab so I, th I think the UK here is just probably propping themselves up to have the available doses at some point I think one of the ideas with the because um, it uses the Pfizer uses a different technology the MR uh, MRANA MRNA whatever yeah, it's yeah. Uh, MRNA yeah. Um, it uh, uses a different te uh, technology which I believe they think can be tweaked slightly easier to fight variants so I know the EU has basically thrown. Um, so you spoke about the op option on AstraZeneca for the EU to take another, buy another hundred million doses. It's rejected that clause in the contract, and it's going to instead buy Pfizer only. And it's planning to buy one point eight billion doses over the next over in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, mm -hmm. um, and putting its kind of trust in the more expensive and slightly different technology in the in the Pfizer jabs in the Moderna jab, and that's what it's going forward with. So I can only kind of presume that's because it's slightly easier to tweak going forward um, against kind of vari emerging variants and actually I think Pfizer came out during the week and said we are pretty confident that our jab can cover the new Indian variant that's kind of mm. wreaking havoc over there at the moment Yeah it would make sense if it's based off the um, sort of the DNA or the RNA strain of the virus that could potentially be modified against new strains um, or that it might just cover any other existing variants like you've said with the Pfizer one uh, it's such a massive amount for when you think uh, by 2023 you said what 1.3 billion 1.8 1.8 billion sorry but I was um I was doing a bit of research earlier and I thought we'd be yeah, a much larger number of vaccines which have been manufactured but um by the end of March it was only a little under 500 million yeah and add to that that Moderna's now announced that it says that the manufacturing capacity, uh, they've announced additional investments to increase global supply for COVID-19 vaccines to up to 3 billion doses from 2022. So that's a hell of a... That's a bold figure to to achieve, I think. Have you read the detail on it? No, I'm not sure what, what their manufacturing capacity is in terms of their facilities around the world, but even judging by, you know, it sounds like a lot. Yeah, they, they say... I'm quoting from the press release. These investments allow for a doubling of drug drug substance manufacturing at Lonza's Switzerland-based facility. Yeah, okay. Um, more than doubling at, at Rovi's Spain-based facility, as well as a 50% increase of drug substance at Moderna's facilities in the US. So it, it does seem to be predominantly US, and then, but there's, there's certainly that, that that's a hell of a, a hell of an upscale in Europe, though. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that COVID-19 is doing is bringing up a conversation um, just about the need to diversify supply chains and vaccine manufacturing because it's quite a high cost production because it's very difficult. There's also a lack of specialists. 
um, you know, you can count the number of vaccine manufacturers on on a couple of hands, I, I, I think. So there's probably going to be arguments after COVID-19 about the need for these facilities. You know, we've seen the UK um, develop their own manufacturing facility for COVID-19, um, the specialist centres. So just, just going forward, we, we can see that if anything like this happens again, we're just not in the situation to to have the uh, preparedness in the logistical facilities and stuff like that ready to, to combat. I just want to uh, move off from vaccines to this final little part. And well, it's just adding a word to it, really, vaccine passports, because I know we haven't really discussed it on much, in much detail yet, Reese. Um, first of all, I'll ask both of your opinions on them. I mean, I think I think it's inevitable for international travel. I mean, I think that's that's a given because it, there's this precedent for you know for, for going around the world and you, and you need proof of inoculations for, for all sorts of different parts of the world. But um, domestically, what 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 do you think of a domestic rollout of vaccine passports? Shall I take it up first? Yeah. Um. <laughs> the it's it's it's. So foreign for foreign and international travel, it's kind of the lesser of two evils. Um, if it's necessary to kind of get families away on their Spanish holidays every year, um, going forward, it's, and it, they're not going to last forever. You, you you can kind of take it on the chin. And actually, one thing the EU have announced with their um, their scheme, the digital green pass, as they call it, it's not just going to be vaccinations because they didn't want it to be discriminatory against kind of younger people that haven't got access or just people that haven't got access to the jabs. So they will accept uh, a vac- proof of vaccination, use of uh, COVID testing, and even go as far as uh, antibodies to prove that you've got some immunity against the virus. So you, you can kind of see that. But um, there's an interesting story in, in Israel, and I've been speaking to a few people there recently, and they, the idea is that the Israeli government announced their green pass um for to basically access things like pubs and restaurants and so forth entertainment say football games or the theater um at a stage when they were struggling to roll out their vaccines to young people young people then see oh i'm not going to be able to go to the pub without one of these certificates do i go and get a jab so is it used as a plan to bounce young people into getting a vaccine when realistically young people don't it's very 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 rare that a young person will get covid19 and be seriously ill with it so is this is this the strategy that we're seeing because now in israel no one really uses these green passes you can you can speak to people in pubs and restaurants there and they will not they're even i even believe that from speaking for a british traveler that has just arrived in israel this week that they're actually quite hard to get hold of because you have to phone an Israeli call centre, you have to have a domestic passport and so forth. So the complications of actually rolling these things out domestically is really quite tricky. So will we probably see a large scale rollout where you need one to go for your pint of Guinness down the Weatherspoons? Probably not. Just don't go to Weatherspoons. On my angle, I'm not really too well versed in the vaccine passports. What I was the interesting point you bring up there, Joe, is about if it's going to be discriminatory against anyone, people who can't access it. Um, for international travel, you know, it's probably going to be gutting if you can't access one and can't go on your holidays with your family for whatever reason, just because somebody hasn't received a, a, a jab. Um, 
I suppose it, it may be needed just to get, well, just to get the economy moving as, as well. You know, if, if this is going to go on for a few years, then surely we need something to get travel moving. And if that's the answer, then it might be like you were saying, Joe, the, the lesser of two evils. Yeah, there's lo- there's loads there's loads and loads of concerns you can have about them, and just watching the European Parliament debate on the EU's digital green pass the other day, you you had kind of people saying, is it detrimental to the EU's kind of free movement policy, where you should be able to move anywhere within the European Union's external borders freely? Is it a kind of a breach of privacy? Do we how do we know that our information is going to be stored safely? Um, I know that's one of kind of the libertarian arguments in the UK. So your like sort of former Brexit secretary David Davis would say, should I have my rights curtailed because I'm not willing to give up my private data into a public system? So how does the government move to protect? That's that? a problem with like the NHS records and how they're stored. It's everything. Exactly, and it is massively complicated in, in how it's stored. So that's always going to be a concern until there's better systems in place. Exactly, and they're all they're all legitimate concerns. So actually, I think what governments have to do is they have to come up with something that's really robust, really quite simple, and can it be accessed by everyone? Because can your gran go down to the supermarket, have to show her smartphone? Does she have a smartphone? Like, they, they, can is it easy to print out? Can can people that don't have access to printers or technology do this? How? So th- th- these are all questions we have to ask ourselves before we start rolling out products like a vaccine's passport is to make sure that they are actually usable and they don't cause genuine issue for people that don't have the, the means to, to use them. I think the issue in the UK in particular is because of uh, the reputation that uh, Test and Trace has had, um, especially given the vast amount of money spent on it, plus not everyone was convinced that it worked. I mean, there's... I know, I know from a couple of times when I went to the pub prior to the second, or th- I think, yeah, prior to the second lockdown, you, you try and you know, sign in with the QR code, it just wouldn't work. So there's there's issues of of, of trust that have, have developed over the course of the pandemic, really, whereas there, there, there is all this technology out there, but it's not there is, a, there is a trust issue in bringing it all together and making sure it does work. Exactly. And you, you look at, can... There's an American uh, app that's used by American Airlines and a few other US airlines called Veriflyer, and it's a third-party application. It's used by choice, but basically the airlines say that you've got to have it, but it's, it's, it's your choice to get on their airline at the end of the day. And you upload a picture of your, your test, um, proof of your vaccine, and then they will have their independent verification processes and then eventually give you a green tick and a QR code that you scan at check-in, and they let you go forward. That does, in itself, really kind of make travel quite easy. Because at the moment, if I was to travel back to the UK, I would need to have a negative test from the Belgian authorities. I would then have to book two tests for an approved supplier at a cost of between £160 up to, I think, 390 depending on what firm you use. Um, and then fill in the customer, uh, passenger, customer passenger locator form and then I would have to go through at the Eurostar tunnel and be be checked at three different points, which normally you would have one passport check coming back into the UK. So it's that kind of burdensome kind of bureaucracy for travelling 
that actually probably make a vaccine passport where you can just have one single QR code, everything's logged into that point and you're through, fine. That kind of it makes life easier for people. But I don't see domestically how you really use them. I think if you you look at some kind of like employers associations and there's they there's people that own bars and restaurants have said, is it not a safety risk for my employees to be asking people to show their vaccine passports because if they don't have one it could cause a kickoff like a fight or a violent altercation and stuff like that so it's i think domestically it's very very hard to convince people maybe they might be initially rolled out in britain um, as a concept to convince young people to get their jabs but then soon we'd see them fade away as a, as a product uh, but for international travel i think they are here to stay yeah. It's it's fascinating that you're actually uh, referring to the convincing young people to get their jabs. There seems to be this campaign going on at the moment where young people are urged to get their jabs. When when it's a case of I'm rolling them out to age forty two. I mean, if, if you may as well start encouraging them when it's the time to get the jab rather than now, where it seems as though you you're basically just having to go with them for no reason. Well, there's a there's a there's a process there, and you have to start kind of drumming this in early on to make sure that kind of people are keen and, and just aware of the process, I think, is, is the main thing, is to make sure that it's easy for one, when your time comes on the scheme, it's easy to actually know where to go. What is the NHS website that you have to log in? Do you have to call your GP? Does your GP call you? But I think they're, they're the things that people see because I, I just, I'm not saying that there's a vaccine hesitancy in young people they will just be more naturally less tuned in to the debate because they know that coronavirus doesn't affect them as much as an older person who wants to hug their grandkids, for instance. Yeah, I think that's always been blown up a little bit. Um, I don't think there's any problem with that type of advertisement now. Um, it's going to, even people you know, who, aren't, who are a bit older than young people are still going to see that advert and go, I love Japan. I've been checked yet. I've got my second dose coming up, and um, it's just a wider conversation. That's that's fine, I think. Okay. Well, uh, I think we can uh, leave it there because fifty odd minutes is a pretty good discussion. We actually thought this would be a shorter one, Joe, but you've actually made it a very yeah. lively one. So, uh, thanks very much for coming on, and uh, and uh, yeah, uh, have a Belgian beer for me. I've got some in the fridge downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much for joining us and uh, we'll be back next time.